The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed with host and author of the award-winning book of the same name, Lisa Lutan. Lisa has amazing tips to help you slow down, get healthy, manage your time, improve your relationships, and deal with stress. Now, here is Lisa Lutan. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about meditation, which is, believe it or not, one of my personal favorite topics. As a health and lifestyle coach, combating stress is a big part of the work I do with my clients. And since I tend to work with type A go-getters, the topic of meditation comes up just about always. I often hear, I can never sit still. My mind is too busy. I'm a bad meditator. You know all that stuff that we all say. I used to say that stuff too. So I really get it. But let me tell you something you might not realize. We all have crazy brains. Well, at least most of us have these crazy brains. And so when I start someone meditating, I actually start them for one minute. And then when one minute seems okay, we go to two minutes. But I like to keep furthering my own study of meditation, and I seek out people that I can learn from. And my two guests today are both so knowledgeable about meditation, you're going to be sitting on your cushion by the end of this this show, I promise. And in the meantime, if you do want to get a copy of my free one-minute meditation download, just send me a note at healthyhappyandhip.com. That's healthyhappyandhip.com. So my first guest today is Lodro Rinsler. Lodro's new book, Love Hurts, Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken, was just released two days ago. And yes, it is an Amazon bestseller. Woohoo! Very excited for Lodro. Lodro is also the author of six other books on meditation, including the best-selling The Buddha Walks Into a Bar and the award-winning The Buddha Walks Into His Office. He is a Shambhala Buddhist teacher and the co-founder of Mindful, New York City's drop-in meditation studio. Lodro, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure and a thrill. Now, Lojo, before we start talking about your book, I'd like to ask you my five Ask Every Guest questions. Number one, what did you have for breakfast today? I had uh, an egg and cheese and croissant and a banana with some coffee. Mm. (laughs) What is your favorite form of exercise? Um, You know, I think this might come as a surprise to some people who, you know, you invited on a meditation teacher, but I actually started boxing about four or five months ago now, and I love it. It's actually a really beautiful discipline. I don't fight in the ring. Uh, You know, I go against bags or shadow boxing, so nothing particularly violent about it, but it's a beautiful discipline and a great sweat, sure. And it's quite meditative, too, isn't it, when you're punching that bag? I find that. (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy to get lost in your head, yeah. Yeah, no, I I like boxing, too. Um, Question number three, what's a habit you're trying to either break or add to your life? Good question. You know, it's it's a co-habit because I have a new puppy, and I also love sleep, and these things don't necessarily go hand in hand. So the habit that I'm trying to get into and get him into is getting up at a normal hour and going straight outside into the freezing cold. (laughs) Good luck with that one. How do you spend the first hour of your day? Often, you know, I'll get up and I'll putter around and have some coffee and get ready, but then I'll I'll spend most of that actually practicing, practicing meditation. And who is someone in your life that inspires you? Uh, You know, I would say my teacher, Sakyong Nipom Rinpoche, who's this um, very well-known Tibetan Buddhist teacher, but came from a really rough background. I and mean, his father stood through the mountains of Tibet into India, leading 300 people with him um, way back when in the 60s. And uh, he was actually raised in his early childhood in a Tibetan refugee camp in India. 
um, had a very difficult upbringing and has actually worked through so much suffering in order to become so incredibly awake and powerful and helpful to others. Great, great. So, Loja, let's start talking about your book, Love Hurts. I, I read the book. I love the book. And I'd like you to just share, you know, how did you get the inspiration to write this book? Sure. I mean, you know, not to get too personal too quickly with everyone, but for me, I mean, I think we've all had heartbreak over the course of our life. For me, there was this moment in 2012 where the bottom really sort of dropped out. And um, there's this period of time, and maybe some listeners can relate where um, everything really fell apart. My longtime job was eliminated. The whole department was let go, uh, which is obviously a big pride to my ego, but threw me into complete financial instability. There was um, a moment where I was um, spending time with my fiance and she woke up one morning and realized that she wanted to move to London. And I wasn't necessarily invited along. She wanted to completely uproot and to change her life. So all of a sudden, this person who I thought I was spending the rest of my life with was no longer with me. That was heartbreaking, of course. And then uh, the straw that really broke the camel's back was that my uh, one of my best friends from college passed away from heart failure in the age of 29. And uh, it was completely, completely shocking. I mean, literally, when they say heart failure, they just say, well, his heart stopped working not like he had an illness or anything like that. Um, and I was devastated. I was completely devastated. And I was, you know, I'd been meditating for most of my life. I've um, been teaching meditation at that point for 10 years, but I couldn't get to the meditation cushion. I wasn't taking very good care of myself. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't exercising. Um, I was laying in bed a lot. I was probably drinking more than I should. I was definitely drinking more than I should. <laughs> And I, even though I wasn't taking care of myself, I had this great community of friends in particular that really took care of me during that time. And they sort of got me back into therapy and got me back to sort of my fighting weight so that I could get back to the meditation cushion and reconnect with the practice, start to work with those strong emotions, started eating better, taking care of myself more, and um, came back to my full self. And for me, it was such a transformative time. Um, that I realized I wasn't alone. You know, I think this is the nature of heartbreak. We always think we're alone when we're feeling it, but it's not true. Uh, there's often more people facing similar things, maybe different storylines, but similar emotions. And that sparked this interest in writing this book on heartbreak, all of the Buddhist advice, my personal stories, and then this really interesting and bizarre way that I wrote the book where I met with people one-on-one uh, for what we called heartbreak sessions. People would just share their stories with me and I would create a space to hold them and to listen to them. And those stories also make their way into the book alongside the ways that these people um, related to their healing and took care of themselves. So it's not just me and my advice. It's actually really sort of collective effort in that way. Well, I have, I have so many, so many questions and thoughts on this. And, you know, I too went through a very similar period like that, not the same circumstances, but like boom, 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 you know, and you start wondering, you know, when's the next shoe going to drop? So when I was exactly. reading your story, you know, I totally, it just touched me on a, a really deep personal level. And then when I started understanding more about these sessions you were doing first of all I have to say ABC Kitchen's one of my favorite stores so I was trying to like literally picture you like how did that happen that you set up a little office in the middle of a store yeah it's a great question so for people who have not seen this ABC Garden and Home is this giant retail store uh, tens of thousands of feet and they gave me a little nook in the back uh, of their event space where I could meet with people one-on-one and they were so generous that there would always be someone there and they would escort someone into the space. We would sit together for about 20 minutes um, and then that person would leave. And it was a beautiful situation where I would then move into, in the afternoons, their storefront window, which was decked out as sort of an author in residence situation. So I had a couch and some tables and all of my books there and I would just write in the window and not a lot of distractions there. I didn't even have Wi-Fi or anything like that, except for the fact that there were tens of thousands of New Yorkers going by knocking on the window and sort of treating me like a monkey in a cage. Um, so I don't recommend it for any of <laughs> writers, 
but it was very generous of them to have me there, and it was a really interesting experience to, in particular, to meet with these people and hear their stories. Because when I say heartbreak, you might think I'm talking about romantic stuff. Not so. The people that actually came forward, they shared stories around giving the child up for adoption and not knowing what happened. They shared stories around um, addiction and recovery and relapsing because they didn't know how to take care of themselves. There were stories of, um, I looked exactly like that person who was a victim of police brutality. I look exactly like her. And that's scary. And that's heartbreaking. So really, I mean, personal, interpersonal, societal heartbreak, all that came up over the course of these, um, I really, it was just about a week that I was in the window, um, cranking away at this book and meeting with people. But it was a very, very powerful week for me. And I love that you define heartbreak in those terms because we, you know, we normally think about it in a romantic way. But when you described it, yeah, the heartbreak of loss, of any loss, is really so huge. It just, it opens that up so much for all of us. And I'm wondering, so what is the Buddhist advice for heartbreak? Yeah, I mean, I think for much of this, it's me saying in different ways. How can we take care of ourselves and look at the emotions that are coming up and not necessarily perpetuate the storylines around them, particularly if it's a romantic situation where we say, oh, I'm heartbroken. That would be fine. But we don't say that. We say, and here's what I'm going to say to get them back. And here's what I'm going to post on Instagram so that they know that I'm doing fine without them. Here's how I'm going to get back at them. Um, all of these sorts of stories start churning up our minds. Instead of just saying, hey, I feel heartbreak, what does that feel like? Let me actually see if I can stay with it, if I can investigate it. And as the more we lean into it, the more we're actually able to come out the other side feeling somewhat refreshed and um, wholesome. So it's really getting ourselves different modalities of dealing with the strong emotions. And because I'm a personal believer in, like, you can't actually do, like, a 10-step plan. The book isn't set up like that. It's literally set up that you open it up and you say, how are you feeling? There's a chapter that says, if you feel depressed. There's a chapter that says, if you feel like you'll never love again. There's a chapter that says, if you feel completely pissed off and angry. So really, whatever you're going through, then there's advice, there's a story, there's an anecdote, something that would ideally be helpful for you. Even if it's as silly as it sounds, I feel like I can't eat. And, you know, it's a little bit of a pep talk. And then I literally say, okay, here's my email address. You, fo- you take a photo of what you eat because I didn't believe you that you're going to eat. You send it to me. <laughs> I saw that so, in the book. I love that. He literally, he literally puts his email out there for people. What a beautiful heart. Wonderful. As you said, it's only been out two days, and I've already gotten a series of emails of people saying, oh, I was feeling exactly like that. I did feel like I would never love again. And thank you because now I don't feel so alone. As I said before, so many of us feel so alone around heartbreak. This is the real, it's a stigma that we carry around with ourselves. Uh, it's just me that's feeling this way, but there's, it's everyone. So, Why do you think there's a stigma around that? The word stigma, I'm intrigued by that. What, a stigma around heartbreak? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at, for example, the culture that we've developed around social media, it's the idea that we should always only put out the best things, right? Look at me on this awesome vacation. Look at my big new work accomplishment. Look at me happy in my new relationship, right? It doesn't capture any of the very real and very normal negative things that happen in our life. Here's me where my luggage got lost and I didn't have anything to wear for three days. Here's me when I got into a fight with my perfect spouse, right? These things are not put out there because we think that we should hide them. We think that even just these little heartbreaks along the way um, aren't worth us talking about or people don't want to know about it, or we should feel like we're failing because we actually have them. And that's not at all the case. It's literally saying, oh, this happens to everyone, and I'm going to acknowledge it. That's actually been some of the power of the book for me. You know, it's so true. Like, we connect on our imperfections, not on our perfections. And I think when we do open up, you know, to that level and we really listen, we really can relate to people on such a better level. So... I love that these people would just show up. Now, the people that did come to your sessions, were, were you doing meditation with them or were you just having them really sit with their feelings and discussing that? Yeah, great question. It was actually, so I would meditate before. I would sort of open a meditation session and then people would come in 
So there's already some sense of spaciousness established in the room. And I would literally ask them four questions. Sometimes I wouldn't even get through all four. Sometimes I'd only get through one or two. And the first question was, what is your experience of heartbreak? And people would just open up. And it was interesting. Sometimes people would be surprised themselves. They thought they would come in and want to talk about their relationship. Really, what came out is the fact that their cat died last year. And they're still mourning that. Really interesting, just when you're given the space, what is your experience of heartbreak, where your mind goes? So after that, the second question was always, how are you feeling right now? And we had the book launch party last night, and uh, I was so happy that a number of those people came. Here it is a year later, and they saw the announcement for the book. They came to the party, and they said, you know, something shifted in me because I actually felt heard and seen. And, you know, really beautiful stories of, and then I went on this big trip, and my life changed. And it's not because I went to you necessarily, but it helped, you know? Just actually feeling like, oh, I can move beyond my storyline for a moment was helpful. So just feeling heard, seen, sometimes would shift the way that they would relate to the heartbreak. Maybe it felt less solid um, or permanent. And then the third question was, how do you take care of yourself in the midst of heartbreak? Not surprisingly, the first response everyone would say was, I'll tell you what I do that I shouldn't do, right? I overeat. I reach for the junk food. I um, pick up a drink. I go on Tinder and find someone to hook up with. Whatever it is. Um, and then they would get into the really good advice for what they know they should do and sometimes do. I take a walk. I connect with friends. I spend time with my puppy. Whatever it might be. And then the fourth was, what is one thing you could do to take care of yourself today? And I often recommend people, even if they're just sitting alone in their apartment, to go through these four questions, jotting down uh, a journal entry or just speaking it out loud. Because then at the end, we're just committing, oh, I'm I'm actually going to do one thing today to take care of myself. I am actually going to go exercise. I am actually going to reach out to a friend and have a conversation, whatever it might be. Ways that we find to sort of implement that we could actually just these little bite-sized ways of taking care of ourselves. So we're going to be going to break shortly, but if anyone does call in after the break, maybe we can walk them through those four questions if you'd be willing to do that. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get a caller. So stay tuned. I'm here with Lojo Rinsler. We're talking about love hurts, Buddhist advice for the heartbroken. And when we get back, Lojo is going to give us some more tips for recovering from heartbreak. Stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at healthyhappyandhip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm talking to Lodro Rinsler, who just wrote a new book, Love Hurts, Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken. And we're having a great conversation just about meditation and heartbreak and all these other really juicy topics. So if you're interested in calling, we will walk you through some, some of Lojo's procedures or methods of moving through heartbreak. But in the meantime, Lojo, let's... Can we walk through what if someone already does have a meditation practice and they want to kind of, you know, move through their own heartbreak? How would they start doing that on their own? Sure. I mean, I I do think it's helpful to have a community that you are connecting to so that you don't feel so isolated, so that you actually are uh, feeling the support of loved ones and people who are looking out for you and making sure that you are eating okay and that you are getting sleep and all of these normal things. But I think the meditation aspect is really important. So, you know, my favorite word for meditation in the Tibetan tradition is gom, G-O-M. That can be translated as meditation, but it can also be translated as become familiar or familiarization. In other words, meditation is a process of us just becoming familiar with all of what's going on with us in a given moment. And sometimes that's awesome and creative and brilliant. And sometimes it is terrifying and neurotic and painful. Um, but we don't, we realize the more we do, we don't have to run away. We can actually learn to accept ourselves exactly as we are, that we can accommodate any of the strong emotions that come up. So I think when it comes to heartbreak, meditation is a really effective tool for working with this so that we, A, embrace ourselves, B, be kind to ourselves, and C, learn to realize that these strong emotional states are actually quite impermanent. I mean, that's the really good news about heartbreak, right? If I asked you what it felt like, or if you asked me, let's say, all of those things I mentioned earlier in our, in our talk happened in 2012. How did I feel on August 2nd, 2012? I don't know. And do I still feel that way? Definitely not. You know, I mean, it's, it's literally the difference between speaking from an open wound and a scar. In this case, they're scars. I carry the pain around with me, but it's not who I am. It's just a small part of who I am. So I think knowing that this happens for all forms of heartbreak is particularly helpful. That even if it's incredibly painful right now, it's not always going to be that way. You know, one thing that really helped me, and I wrote, I did a lot of writing at the time about when I was going through my own really, really rough period, that meditation helped me focus on the moments instead of getting into that, oh my God, my life sucks, you know, like everything's going awful. I was able to break it down. And that's all I could deal with at the time and saying, I can still find little moments of joy, even when I'm going through hell. And just learning that then has been really life changing for me you know, living in that way. So you mentioned the word community before, and you've created an amazing community at Mindful in New York. And I'd love for you to just talk about, like, how do you get the idea for that? And maybe tell our listeners a little bit about it. Sure. So Mindful exists to enable humans to feel their own goodness. Um, It is a meditation studio. If you've ever gone to a yoga studio, it's sort of a similar model. It's... um, drop-in style. It's 30 and 45-minute classes. So, and each of them revolve around different themes. So if you want to live with more intention, there's a mindful intentions class. If you are feeling stressed out, mindful breath. If you're feeling low energy, mindful energy. And each of these are different meditation techniques from different traditions that help us access that particular quality that we're trying to cultivate. So we have Buddhist teachers and Vedic teachers and Kundalini teachers and Jewish mindfulness instructors, you name it. And within all of this, there's um, this through line of really trying to make meditation as accessible as possible. It doesn't feel jargony. It's really offered in plain English. Um, It's not necessarily even a religious experience. It's people who have been extremely well-trained, certified expert teachers within a religious tradition who are using plain English to actually make these teachings accessible. And the big news with us is that we actually just announced two days ago, um, that we are opening a second location in the Upper East Side here in Manhattan, in addition to our current Greenwich Village location in Manhattan, and one location in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in the new year. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Really cool. So let's say somebody's brand new to meditation, and they see this, and they're a little bit intimidated, and they they go, I can't even sit still for a minute. How am I going to sit still for a half hour, you know, in a class? What would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I think 
it's not as bad when you're in a community. So we were just say, we keep using this word. But if I'm sitting on my own and I'm listening to a YouTube video and I feel like I'm not getting it right, it's frustrating. I'm more likely to just sort of jump off the cushion. But there's something about coming to a class like this. You're holding yourself accountable. You show up. There's other people in the room. There's no jumping up and running through the wall like a cartoon. You actually are just holding your seat. And it just it feels good because there's a real teacher in the front of the room helping you. And that's the beauty of it. It's not, um, you know, none of these people made this stuff up last Thursday. These are time-tested techniques offered by really certified and expert teachers who get to know you over time and really support you. So they look at your posture. They actually are available before and after class to give you advice on how to get practice going, even if you feel like you can only sit for a minute. Well, let's talk about posture for a second. Like, what what is the correct posture? You know, you see people on a cushion, you see people on a chair, you see people lying down, you see people walking. What is really the posture that's recommended? So I often recommend, and obviously if people cannot physically do this, they should adjust. There's no point in being in pain while you meditate. But the classic posture is that one would sit either in a chair with your feet firmly on the ground or on a cushion with your legs loosely crossed, feeling the weight of your body through your sits bones, lifting up gently through the spine itself, tucking in the chin, and relaxing the muscles in the face. There's different ways of holding the hands, but I often recommend just placing them palms down on the thighs. It's a way to really rest and settle the mind and also give us a little bit of support for the back. So when we do that, we're already finding this sort of a balance point between relaxation, because we're relaxing so many of the muscles, and upliftedness and dignity, because we're sitting upright and awake. So this is a really beautiful way to actually connect with the posture, and then even just simply resting with the breath becomes so much easier when we do that. You know, one thing that's really interesting is I've been meditating for years and I always meditated with my eyes closed. And then when I was reading your book, you mentioned that you meditate with your eyes open. So I started playing around with that like over the last week and I thought it's such a different experience and I'm really digging it. Like I I definitely go back to closing my eyes, but I'm really working with this open eyes. Can you talk about that a little bit? The Any pros and cons and any thoughts about that? Sure, happy to. So um, there's a practical answer and a traditional answer. Practical answer. If you are sleepy and you close your eyes while you meditate, you are more likely to fall asleep. Right? That's pretty practical. Um, the traditional answer, or more around the view around why we do this, is that if we are trying to wake up to the present moment, wake up to all of who we are, it seems counterthetical to try and close off our senses, including our eyes. In the same way we wouldn't put earplugs in in order to close out the sounds. So here we are really learning to accept ourselves and the present moment as it is. And that might be helpful if we're actually seeing what we see in addition to hearing what we hear and feeling what we feel. Yeah, I recommend listeners, if you do meditate, give it a try because it it really was a very interesting shift for me doing that. It almost took some of the pressure off with I literally was able to just be in a, in a whole new way. So thank you for that little tip in there. Um, Lodro, how do we incorporate mindfulness in, just into our everyday lives? So I, I mean, there's so many different little tips. I think there's two things. One is the more we practice meditation day in and day out, the more it naturally seeps into our life, right? This is even a conscious thing. But there's also what I would call applied mindfulness where we say, okay, I'm going to show up for this thing. For me, you know, it's like the morning or the afternoon walk with the dog. One walk a day. I say, okay, no distractions, no phone, no nothing. I'm just walking the dog. And that actually means I'm in my body. That actually means I'm in constant communication with the dog. And I'm just there for the experience, whatever it might be. It could be eating your breakfast or having your morning coffee. It could be um, the shower at the end of the day, but actually picking something that you do every single day and saying, oh, I'm going to show up fully for that. I'm going to just try to be mindful for that activity. Apply the meditation, mindfulness, I'm cultivating on the cushion to the rest of my life. So what do you make of, you know, when I, I go to New York and visit a lot and each time I go, I notice more and more that people are walking down the street, they've got their headphones in, they're literally looking at their phone, maybe even texting while they're walking. 
not very mindful. And so, and this is definitely a trend. We're moving more and more in that direction. So is meditation the counterbalance to that? Yeah, I do think the more that we practice just being present with the way that things are on the cushion, the more that translates into our everyday life often. I mean, literally, we have this term meditation practice, which indicates that we're practicing for all these other waking hours of the day. It's really quite that simple. So if you want to, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, I just want to call this in. You know, I'm just going to call in today. <laughs> not really going to pay attention to anything. I think people want to live full and authentic lives. And this is a tool that allows us to do that. It actually gives us the energy, you could say, to actually show up more fully and authentically for our full day. How long have you been meditating yourself? So I started practicing meditation when I was six years old. I'm 34 now, um, so about 28 years. 38 years? I don't know how old I am. 28 years. And um, I started doing longer retreats when I was in my late teenage years. So I took temporary ordination as a monk when I was 17. When I was 18, I spent a couple months in um, group retreat in Colorado um, as a lay practitioner. So I've been sort of doing this for a while, and I've been teaching meditation for about 15 years now. So you started at six. Did your parents teach you how to meditate? You know, my parents have been practicing meditation and Buddhism for quite some time at that point. Um, so it's always just sort of in the environment. It's not, I really didn't consciously try to teach me or convert me or anything, but I picked up on it at that age. And um, because the practice is so simple, even a six-year-old could do it. Um, speaking of six-year-olds, you know, I see many parents always say to me, oh, you know, I wish there were more classes for meditation for kids. Is that something that's, you know, popping up more in schools? You know, what's going on with that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Mindful, for example, offers regular classes for kids uh, starting with our Upper East Side location in January. And this is something that we really, you know, we've seen such a demand. People have been asking us for these classes for so long. Even last night at the book launch party, people were saying, ah, you know, I just wish my kid would do it. And I thought, what a wonderful way to get adults to meditate. If their kids all of a sudden are like a little bit calmer and kinder, like, oh, I think this meditation thing works. Maybe the parents will do it too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what is, are there different types of meditation that somebody, if they're just starting out, like, are there, sorry? Um, there's many different types of meditation and, you know, without becoming too technical and, and academic about it. You know, there's Vedic traditions, which, depending on who you ask, either stands back five or 8,000 years. It's a mantra-based meditation tradition. Um, people who might be familiar with the transcendental meditation, that's a form of Vedic meditation. So, one to meditate with a mantra that you've been initiated into using. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's often emphasized that we would meditate on the breath, which is really the best portable meditation device you can get, because we always have it with us already. Um, there is also mantra traditions within that, visualizations, frustrations, lots of different forms of meditation. But I think even just focusing on the breath for 10 minutes a day really goes a long way in actually like bringing the mindfulness into our bones so we can bring it into the rest of our life. So just starting off super simple, just 10 minutes, focusing on the breath, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Cool. So... Lojo, tell people, where can they get your book, your new book, Love Hurts? So Love Hurts is now in bookstores nationwide and also on IndieBound and Amazon and all sorts of other, wherever books are sold, I suppose. So exciting. So, so, so exciting. And if they want to learn more about your studio, Mindful, where would they go for that? Mindfulmeditation.com and uh, it's mndflmeditation.com. And if you don't live in the world, which I imagine many people do, uh, the big news today is that we've also launched an online channel so that you can watch all of the mindful teachers that uh, are so wonderful that I was talking about earlier uh, guide you through meditation if you would like to watch videos at home. Whoa. So wait, say that again, because like, like I said, I'm in Boston here. So we can log on and sit through a class or it's a recorded class. Can you explain that a little bit yep. more? Yeah, right now it's um, recordings from our teachers, one, five, 10, 20, 30-minute recorded sessions. Some of them are just mindful moments, like a one-minute meditation while you're waiting for your morning commute, things like that. And all of that can be found at mndflmeditation.com. 
Wow, that is super, super exciting. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Lotro, we're going to be going to break shortly. It's been so wonderful having you on the show. I can't thank you enough. And congratulations once again on the success of your new book. And just thanks for chatting with our listeners today. Thanks for having me. Great. Take care. So, listeners, after the break, we're going to be coming back, and I'm going to be talking to Andy Kelly, who is the founder and director of Boston Buddha Meditation for Everyone. So stay tuned, and we'll be back shortly after the break. And thanks again so much, Lodro. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at healthyhappyandhip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're talking about meditation today. And my next guest is Andy Kelly, who's the founder and director of the Boston Buddha, Meditation for Everyone. Andy helps ordinary people like us to learn to slow down and recharge through meditation. He prides himself on being a regular guy that reaches an audience that might not otherwise be inclined to meditate. Andy's currently a certified meditation instructor who studied under Dr. Deepak Chopra. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Good to be here. Great. So, Andy, I always start asking every guest the same five questions. Number one, (laughs) what (laughs) what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, uh, I had a fried egg with spinach and tomatoes. What is your favorite form of exercise? Running, hands down. I run most mornings. What's a habit you're trying to either break or add to your life? Salt water company in business. I buy a lot of those seltzer waters, and I know that's not great for the environment. My wife harps on me a little bit for it. So probably in the new year, trying to limit how many I buy a week. Or sort of stop drinking the seltzer water. Is that it? No, I'll still I'll still drink it, but I can you can make it. I have a machine that makes it, but I'll still like the way people buy coffee. I buy liters of like polar seltzer water. <laughs> okay, our guest Andy Kelly, the Boston Buddha, who was telling us how he spends the first hour of his day. So yes, yeah, so I wake up, uh, I go to a different room in my house, I sit and I meditate for about twenty minutes. Uh, I meet a couple friends after that. We go uh, for a run, probably four or five miles, come back home, and then uh, I practice what's called mindful yelling. I, I try to wake my kids up to get them to school. <laughs> mindful yelling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that one. Um, who is someone in your life that inspires you? Oh, I mean, I, I guess the cheesy answer, but it's the truth. It's definitely my wife. I think uh, she's an amazing mother, a great parent, 
Uh, she never quits at anything that she does, and she obviously is generous enough to let me do what I wanted to do with my life um, when it came to leaving my full-time job and going to teach meditation. Um, she's just the absolute best, and I think her spirit shines so bright for the rest of us. So that's a great lead-in. Like, let's hear, how did you become the Boston Buddha? Well, I was, you know, I basically came out of college and I started working for uh, the local news networks. And I started working local production, so I worked a lot with uh, what you would call a live shot, so bringing in local people to produce for national television shows for like NBC, Fox News, CNN, all those different type of networks that needed talking heads. So I would pretty much be working every single day, 12, 14-hour days, trying to, you know, put out everyone else's fires, help everyone else. And then I'd come home. We're both in the same, you know, field. So I'd come home tired, short, anxious, you know, just wanting to have a beer, watch the game, only to crash, go to bed, wake up at 2 in the morning with that pounding heartbeat saying, you know, you should have done this, you could have done this, why didn't you do this, and not be able to put myself back to bed. So I did that probably for a good five or six years of just working all the time, running myself ragged, helping everyone else. And my wife gave me a book by Deepak Chopra, who I didn't know at the time, um, a lot of people will tell me that they know who Deepak is. Uh, I knew who Tupac was. I had no idea who Deepak was. Um, but I read his book. It had a lot to do with meditation. And I connected with some of the material in the book, uh, specifically some of the science that had been coming out around how you can really demystify some of the teachings. And so I read a few more books and decided to take a few classes. I meditated on my own um, with the help of the the Chopra Center and the Center for Mindfulness out here in, in Worcester, Massachusetts with uh, one of my other teachers, John Kabat-Zinn. Um, and so did that for about five years and then realized that there are a lot of people just like me that just want to be happy. They just want to be a little bit more successful in their careers. But ultimately, I think deep down, we all just want to be happier in our lives. And I was finding this through meditation, being okay with whatever was happening in my life instead of trying to push away all the bad stuff or grasp at all the good stuff. I was happy navigating in more moments throughout my day. So I decided to kind of go into a training with Deepak Chopra. And at the same time, you know, I became a, um, a certified instructor for the Chopra Center in 2009. And um, at the same time, still kept studying uh, at the Center for Mindfulness a little bit and kind of came up with my own way of, of kind of boiling down a lot of this ancient text and stuff that I had learned. And so I wanted to bring it to more of a, like an average everyday person that might not be inclined to show up at a yoga studio or a meditation studio. So I love that story because I think so many of us can relate to it on so many levels. But how would you start somebody off like a brand new meditator, you know, who comes in and goes, you know, I'm kind of scared. I'm a little wigged out. It's a little woo-woo for me. Like how would you, you know, walk them through a beginner's meditation? Well, I think the first thing that I would do is kind of explain that there are so many different types of meditations out there. And one of the mistakes that, not a mistake, but one of the things that I went through in the beginning was kind of to demystify some of the actual myths that surrounded meditation. And for me, those were the ones that were stopping me. Like, do I have to sit still? Do I have to, can I move? What if I have an itch? Things like that would always kind of throw me off as a, as a meditator. So, I wanted to just basically get them in the room and just say, okay, listen, there are three or four things that you need to know about meditation for it to work. And the first one is you're going to have thoughts in meditation. A lot of people will say to me, you know, I just want to, and myself included, I just want you to get rid of all my thoughts. I want to shut down for 20 minutes. And you find out quickly that meditation, in meditation, you rather you need thoughts. You need thoughts to remind you that you're not focusing on whatever the object of attention is. And usually, depending on what type of meditation you do, but they usually all have some form of a, a, a place to focus, to lightly focus your attention, whether that's the breath, the mantra, a visual cue, whatever. We usually focus on something until our mind drifts away. So when our mind drifts away, all I ask any one of my students to do is just to acknowledge that you notice that you're distracted. If you can acknowledge without judgment or practice without judgment, because it's easier said than done, that you're distracted, then that's the real magic moment of mindfulness because in any meditation practice, once you're aware that you're distracted, you have a choice. You can keep being distracted or you can come back to the object of attention. 
And obviously, in the meditation practice, you want to come back to the object of attention. It's repeated that many, many times. So what happens if you do have the itch? I scratch it. I don't want to sit there. And think, I mean, I understand that. And I certainly heard uh, Lodor talk about how they formally sit in class, and I think it's great, and it cultivates that attitude of openness. But if I'm sitting there wondering uh, why I'm so itchy and I could just scratch it really quick and get back to meditating, then that's what I want to do. I think a lot of people wanted to hear your answer on that question because I, I don't even know how to answer that question. You know, you see these movies and you have the guy who's meditating and the fly is buzzing around his head and he doesn't flinch, you know, and you go, oh, how could I ever be that way? Yeah. So, yeah. But so that's you know, what, what he also said is that that's part of the practice. It becomes part of the, the practice where we're practicing to be in more moments throughout the day. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it, I, I scratch. If I have an itch, I scratch. If I'm uncomfortable, I move. If I'm cold, I put a blanket on me. And honestly, I sit in a couch. I sit on a couch every single morning with a blanket on me. I don't sit on the floor cross-legged. I would argue that most yogis did back in the day because they didn't have access to couches. If they had (laughs) access to couches, then maybe they would have sat in a little bit more comfortable seat. And do you put your two feet firmly on the ground? Do you cross your legs? Does that matter? No, it doesn't matter to me. It's all about cultivating that inner openness of what you're trying to do. And for me, it's what I'm trying to do is be there in the room. So I don't want to hyper-focus on perfecting that one seat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long do you meditate for in the morning? Uh, I meditate every single morning for 20 minutes in the morning. Um, I think that between 20 and 30 is probably optimal, but there are plenty of people that I would say you know, you can meditate much less. Uh, For me, I meditate 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon, but sometimes I don't have the 20 minutes in the afternoon, so it's usually those days I go for a run or I'm practicing yoga. I believe that, that, you know, you can overdo anything. I have plenty of people that will come to me and say, oh, I just had the best meditation. I meditated for three hours, and I'm thinking, that's great if you have the time, but, man, what you could have done with those two and a half extra hours (laughs) and you personally do you use a mantra do you listen to the breath what is your style so in the morning for years I did a mantra based meditation because for me they kind of boil uh, a lot of the meditations boil down to like three categories and one is a focus meditation or a mantra based meditation where you're kind of harnessing that ability to gather all that wild attention and settle it down so you can focus and that's what a mantra does for me so I use that usually in the morning when I have a lot of lists and things like that. And then I kind of grew into, in the afternoon, I focus on the breath either in the chest, the nose, or the abdomen because I want to feel um, that connection that I have to the body. So I'll do body scans or guided meditations. I also believe if I'm tired in the afternoon, a guided meditation is super helpful. Kind of stimulate that part of the prefrontal cortex that keeps you awake. It's kind of like a little snack. I, I tell my clients, like sometimes you know you need something and you think it's food, but it's not food. And sometimes doing a little guided meditation can be just kind of yummy, you know, just uh, to kind of get you right. over that hump. You know, right. I used to I listen to Deepak like, Chopra's you know, plug, meditation. It's like plugging in your phone. It'll work. It'll keep working. You'll run yourself down. But if you just plugged it in for 20 minutes, you'll get so much better use out of it the rest of the day. It's so true. Now, do you use the same mantra every day when you meditate, or do you mix it up? Uh, I mix it up. Uh, you know, I don't switch. If I, I decide on what I'm going to do when I sit, and I decide on the time, and those are really the only two rules that I have, because what will happen sometimes I find is that I'll get halfway through and I say, well, this mantra's not working, I'm going to switch it. And what I think is you need a little bit of that discipline of understanding why you're doing it in the first place, so I kind of stick with it. So I can um, see it through to the end. That's the same Mm -hmm. with time. I sit for the amount of time that I say I'm going to sit at the beginning because I can't tell you how many times I said, well, this doesn't seem to be working, so I'll try again tomorrow. So true. I love love my little timers. So, Andy, we have a few minutes left in the show, and I don't want to run out of time. How do people reach you and learn more about the Boston Buddha? Well, um... I'm, uh, basically, they can go to thebostonbuddha.com or bostonbuddha.com. Either one works. Uh, they can find out my classes. Usually on uh, every Monday and Wednesday, I'm in, at uh, a, a yoga studio, Steel Studio, where I teach a half yoga, half meditation class on Monday nights. And then 
for people that take that class, I provide a drop-in $5 donation class on Thursday to help people strengthen their attention. It's just a 20-minute guided meditation from 6.30 to 7.30. Uh, Monday, it's 6.30 to 7.30. Thursdays, it's 6.30 to 7, sorry. Um, and then um, on my site, you, you can take anything. There are classes that I'm teaching in the new year, everything from classes on Mindfulness to classes on mindful drinking. I think I even have a class coming up for that uh, in Mindful February. drinking? Like drinking alcohol drinking? Yeah, it's not like, it's not like, a, it's like after we meditate, there's a group that, that likes to get together and kind of figure out why they like beer. It's certainly, I think, uh, um, I, part of this is, is like, it's certainly not for like, if you're having a bad day. You know, it's not one of those mm-hmm. type of meditations. It's, it's more you learn to meditate. And then sometimes that sense of community opens up a little bit if you have, a, you know, a glass of wine or, or, or a beer or you're just trying to figure out why you like something. I love that. Very cool. So Andy also sent me a really cool chart that I put on my website. If you go to healthyhappyandhip.com and go to the radio show page, I have that posted today. So you can check that out. Um, we are running out of time. Andy, thank you so much. I would love to have you back again one day because I think I feel like we had so much to talk about and there's so much to learn here. So thank well, you very much. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk again. Yeah. And listeners, it's been really a pleasure today. And I hope that you'll stop by my website, healthyhappyandhip.com. And please connect with me, you know, drop me a note, send me some thoughts on the show or thoughts on future guests for the show, because I really do want to hear from you. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I do have a one minute meditation recording that I'm happy to send to you. So just uh, reach out to me on the website. And I hope you have a beautiful, calm, peaceful, mindful day. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode on busy, stressed, and food obsessed. Did you get some great ideas from today's show? Join Lisa Lutan again next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.